Data storytellers. Today on the podcast, I have with me Gene Tabak, and Gene is the director of data science over at Instacart, and we're going to have uh, an exciting conversation today. Gene, welcome on the show. Thanks. Super excited to be here. This is actually uh, the first ever time I'm doing a podcast, so an experience for me. Okay. Well, actually, my uh, co-founder and co-host on the podcast, Paul, uh, already told me that you guys are working on some interesting stuff, and I was excited totally. to explore. Yeah. And uh, today, we'll, we'll talk about all things data. You do have a very interesting background. So uh, you spent some time at Capital One, Google, Facebook, and Instacart. It's an exciting and uh, um, rapidly growing organization. So first of all, um, just exploring your professional journey a little bit. What got you into uh, data science to, uh, to begin with? How, how did you end up here? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, I actually, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. I feel like every person says the same thing. But, um, you know, when I went to college, I never really want like thought about or knew about data science. Actually, when I went to college, I'm dating myself a little bit, like data science didn't really exist. I think it was called statistics back then or something else. Um, I actually went to college for mechanical engineering. Um, I wanted to build cars and spaceships. I discovered through like doing internships that uh, building, that mechanical engineering isn't really building cars and spaceships. It's like a lot of power plants and air conditioning and stuff. And that wasn't really very interesting to me. Um, my favorite part was uh, honestly always solving problems. And so, you know, I got a master's degree um, and I just wanted to like find jobs that were problem solving type of jobs. And at the time it was a lot of banking and consulting. So chose to go into banking. Um, at Capital One, um, I think there's like a lot of, uh, it's a very diverse company. So like there's one, like my uh, role of business analyst, you could have done a variety of different things. So you could like focus on marketing, focus on search engine optimization, focus on uh, analytics and modeling. And I chose to kind of spend a little bit more of my time on analytics and modeling. So I worked on the, uh, like the credit card model there. So if during the years of um, like 2012 to 2014, you didn't like the credit limit your Capital One card gave you, I guess you could blame me. Um, and, uh, yeah, from there, I think it kind of, um, just, you know, doing this job, I liked it. I wanted that at that point is like more minute tweaks to my career. So it was like, you know, I really actually didn't really like working in credit cards. I found the actual product to be a little bit boring. Um, so I started just applying to like a bunch of tech companies, um, cause I like wanted to work on products that I really enjoyed using. Um, so, you know, Google where I ended up going was obviously one of those, like at the time, Google was everyone's favorite product to use. And uh, I applied to like a bunch of others as well, like even like Sony or, you know, places like that. Um, after joining Google, I was there for like two or three years. Uh, I think again, kind of like small, small tweaks. Um, I discovered the area I worked in wasn't super close to like the central product. Um, it, I, it was like effectively like a marketing analytics type of function. So, you know, great company, uh, super interesting product space, but I felt like we weren't really core to decision, like central decision-making. We were core to like marketing decision-making, but even marketing was pretty removed from the, the main products. Uh, so at that point I had an opportunity at Facebook to like work on like the central like newsfeed products. And so that's like kind of exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to like work on something important, something that's at the center of the company. Uh, so I went there, um, things ended up working out pretty well. I feel like I got really lucky with like a great manager and like a role that was, uh, kind of played to my strengths. So I stuck around there for, I think almost six years, um, kind of moving from like a somewhat junior day science role into like more of like a leadership role, um, over a long period of time. And then, um, you know, five or six years is a very long time to spend anywhere. Um, and, you know, a lot of things are changing within the company. And, um, you know, some people that I had worked with in the past that also like moved to Instacart and Instacart is 
something I discovered that's really important to me at Facebook is like, I need to be able to work on products that I personally resonate with and personally mm. really like. Um, I think unlike most people my age, I probably spend like an hour a day on Facebook. So I really like Facebook. So that like really helped me, um, you know, like have impact there and like feel really connected to the products. Um, so this is the card. I like for me, it's it was like probably the biggest value add to my life because I hate grocery shopping and it takes me like three or four hours to go grocery shopping. So the fact that I could get this stuff delivered to my door is just amazing. And uh, yeah, like a lot of people I know kind of like moved over there. There was a really good opportunity that came up. And so yeah, so I take it. And here I am. It's been, I think, five months now. Okay, well, quite a journey there. And yeah. um, what you mentioned about credit card, so cre credit cards, MasterCard is one of our member organizations. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. going to give them a heads up so that they don't take it personally. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, uh, this is, this, I, I do want to kind of uh, touch on this point, though. I think like different things are important to, to different people. Um, I think like a lot of people I interview like absolutely don't care about the product they work on. They care about the data problems. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like the d actual data problems in credit are super interesting because you have such an amazing wealth of data and like it's very mature. Um, but just like for me, like I realized like, okay, that's nice to have, but like actually like working on a product that I find like I'm passionate about is more important. So varies by person. Absolutely. I can, I can definitely relate. I mean, we build the, the data storytellers on, on that foundation of you got to be passionate totally. about it. And, yep. and I hundred uh, percent see where you're coming from. Just a quick question on, uh, on your time, uh, at Facebook. So head of ecosystem data science, just out of interest. So what did it actually cover? This was the time when, uh, uh Facebook started to create like a whole ecosystem of different applications. And then your job was to basically figure out how that all interconnects and how that, how that can be, uh, value driven from analytics in that space. Was that the role? Uh, that's actually like a surprisingly good description of it, but I'll, I'll give a little bit more detail. Um, so, I mean, you probably like have discussed this on your other uh, mm -hmm. interviewees, but I'll give like a very rough overview of how data science works in mm -hmm. a lot of these tech companies. Um, generally what you have is you have the product team, like with product managers, you have software engineers, like engineering managers and data scientists often form kind of like this triangle of like the three technical areas that like drive a product forward. And, you know, some, like you also have product designers, you also have user researchers, but like generally like that's kind of like most companies, the, the core. And uh, the way it's usually organized, you have like specific products and like within products, you have that core team. So like the newsfeed has like someone who's in charge of product and your product managers and every surface, same thing for engineering, same thing for data science. They kind of work in this like tri triumvirate, so to speak. Um, what you end up missing in that type of environment and like everything you use on Facebook has that type of structure. So like the team that works on like the marketplace app really just focuses on marketplace. Like they don't care about what happens on newsfeed. They don't care about how many stories you post. They only care about how like much you like purchasing and selling items. So what ends up happening in this uh, type of environment, and I think we actually saw this happen when, in my first year in the team, is uh, there is kind of um, a broader, higher level view that no one's really looking at. And this ended up, ended up happening, like I said, in my first year where like some of our like core metrics, um, you know, how much time people spend start like, you know, dropping a little bit in a way that no one expected. And I think at that point, like the, our like chief of product or kind of went over to like the various teams, like, Hey, um, you know, this metric's going down. Do you know why? And they're like, we don't know. Like our group's metrics are doing great. And they went over to marketplace team and they're like, Hey, why is this metric going down? They're like, we don't know. Our marketplace metrics are doing great. And so at that point, I think I was just like the one person on the team. And like, at that point, we started getting a lot more investment is that we realized that like looking at individual products doesn't really let you see that, that big picture and kind of look at that type of thing. 
Um, so to start, what the team was responsible for was kind of, as you described, looking across the various things that the Facebook app offers and kind of uh, understanding like how these things connect and things like that. So like as an example of one analysis we might do is, you know, we have to make trade-offs between different products. So like often if you make one better, you make one a little bit worse. So if you encourage people to post more cat photos, it might mean that they watch fewer videos. And so these things often trade off. And like, those are the type of types of things that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, over a longer period of time, it kind of, be, that was like more of the reactive type of work. It became a little bit more proactive where we're like, hey, like we're actually looking across this broad landscape. Like what's the next thing we should focus on? Um, so like Facebook's uh, focus on like the younger population was something that kind of like came out of our team where we're like, hey, we're looking at the data. Like here's like a gap. Here's like some products that we should build to bridge that gap. And then the product teams end up uh, spending some time on that. Oh, that's really cool. And now what is your mission at Instacart? So why I ask is I can definitely relate to the uh, uh, to the struggles of grocery so uh, shopping. And I know that actually when I'm, I lived seven years in the UK and actually this whole online grocery shopping there, it's huge. Here in North America, uh, based on what I observed, less so, probably it's also quite regional in that sense. But I know that in the UK, it was very sophisticated, even on the online user, user experience level. And um, I talked to quite a few people in uh, Ocado, Asda, Tesco, Waitrose, uh, data professionals, there mm -hmm. and it was really really interesting to see how they optimize user experience uh, on many levels leveraging data so uh, what is your mandate now over at instacart what is your general mission uh, why did they bring you on board yeah so uh so i guess i'll, I'll give a little bit of background here as well um so at instacart it's effectively like a four-sided market um mm -hmm. so you have like the that's the way we think about it so you have like customers who buy the groceries you have shoppers who are actually in the stores picking the groceries um, you have advertisers who like put ads on our platform and, you know, we generate a good amount of revenue from that. And then uh, there's like the actual stores that we partner with to do all the shopping at. Um, and so we call that the e-commerce pillar. And that's the pillar that I kind of came in to support on the day sign side. Um, and so there's like a few things that pillar does, but I think the, the main thing that we're trying to do now is build this, uh, this uh, platform of services. Whereas previously, we often kind of uh, partnered directly with uh, like a lot of retailers like Costco or Sprouts or Wegmans or any of these stores in the US. Um, and we partnered with them to like kind of help like build out their offerings, like, um, you know, build features that they then adopt into their storefronts. But we're actually trying to lean towards this model where rather than like building one-off features that work for Wegmans or one-off features that work for Costco, we're actually building like broader features that um, all of these retailers can kind of plug into and use like the way they see fit. So if like a store like Costco feels like they have an amazing group of shoppers in their stores, but their catalog is really bad, like they don't need to get the whole Instacart thing. They can just pick out the catalog. They can like pick out the delivery. They can do the shopping themselves and it's all gonna plug in. Um, so that's kind of like the vision that we're uh, aiming towards. We're, we're not quite there yet. Um, and so, you know, I think data, data is pretty instrumental here because like, honestly, I think the main advantage that Instacart has over, you know, there are a lot of people in the space, as you mentioned. Um, and the main advantage Instacart has is that we have a wealth of data from like the regular Instacart B2C side, and then we can kind of leverage that data and figure out what things we need to build and how we need to optimize things when we're building this platform. Mm. Would you say that Instacart's uh, challenges as, a, as an organization, would that be similar for like a traditional businesses main issues and bottlenecks when it becomes when it comes to becoming more data driven uh or do you think it's more similar to some of the new businesses like facebook or netflix uh or amazon 
Yeah, it's a really good question. It is actually, um, I would say it's in between because mm -hmm. you have some of the, it's some of both. Mm -hmm. um, Instacart, like the actual company itself is much closer to Facebook or Google in that type of way. I, you know, a lot of our execs even come from those areas. Like a lot mm -hmm. of our tech stack is kind of lifted from those companies. Um, and I so know that the director of data science has, uh, used to be at Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 right. Well, I mean, even uh, even my my boss, the the VP of data science, like she came from Google, so it's it's a lot oh, there, of us here. There you go, there you go. Um, yeah, so I think we, we do have a lot of that there, and I think the actual company itself like has that type of um, you know data driven and kind of like innovative uh, culture beneath it. But a lot of the stores that we partner with, um, like kind of the ones I mentioned, uh, like Instacart's like a. 10, I'm going to get this wrong. It sounds good, but I mean, it's like a 10, 15 year old company, um, much like Facebook or like Google. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these stores have been around for like 40, 50, 60 years, right? So they've been doing stuff a long time. They figured everything out and they figured it out in a time when data and technology didn't really exist. And mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to like their in-store experience and the way they sell stuff in the grocery store, like it is hyper-optimized. They know exactly what they're doing. They know all the, all the tricks. Um, but then when it comes to the digital experience, which is what we're trying to help them build, um, it is a bit of a, it's a bit of a shift to go from like knowing everything about a experience where like, you know, digital data isn't really necessary. It's now being forced effectively by like the way the world is moving to shift into this digital space. And in the digital space, you don't quite know what you're doing because you haven't spent 50 years perfecting it. And, but you still are kind of in that mindset where like, you feel like, you know, your business really well. And so I think that's kind of like some of the challenge that, that we have there. And, you know, sometimes like we want to uh, like run experiments or we're like, Hey, we have like this test that proves this idea works. And they're like, well, we've been trying this in our store for 30 years and we know the idea doesn't work. And so like, it's kind of like, how do you uh, like have that conversation? Mm. So this directly ties into uh, my question about your take on the industry today, because you've been, um, basically in data for a while now. Uh, how did you see the industry change? How, what, what do you observe to be the key challenges and opportunities in data analytics today for large businesses? Ooh, um, it's kind of a very broad question. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think, so I think like, honestly, data is so commonplace these days. That's like actually very easy for almost any business to like develop the base level of data understanding, like kind of to the point where like, maybe I'm exaggerating, but the way that like typing was 40 years ago, or like even having a website was 10 or 15 years ago, like, you know, for a while, it's probably very hard to have a website and you need to like hire a developer and you have to do a whole thing. Just like 15 years ago, it was actually hard to have dating to hire a whole thing. Um, now there's like a lot of plugin services and uh, there's like, you can, you basically don't need to have any data in-house. You can basically like pay out to like five or six companies and just have everything uh, kind of work for you and maybe have one or two people working on it. So to get to like the very base level of data comprehension for a company these days is just super easy. Um, getting to that next level gets a little bit tougher because there's like a variety of challenges you're facing. Um, one is, you know, having folks who kind of can really deeply understand uh, the data and like build out models and machine learning and things like that. Um, you often like hear this meme about like, you know, executives who are like, oh yeah, AI or ML, like buzzwords, like, you know, build out for me in two days. Um, actually like super, super hard to do. So that's where like things have to get a little bit more specialized. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, which is like more of what I spend my time on is actually honestly kind of like data storytelling, you know, mm -hmm. not to plug the name of your <laughs> podcast here. Um, but it's basically like, how do you use this data to tell the right story and make the right business decision? Because like five people can look at the same piece of data and come out with five different conclusions. Like it's very rare. That's an obvious conclusion. 
And so you need someone to kind of like put, pull the pieces together, figure out what the next thing is to look at and like actually have the right decision for the business. Mm. Um, so I think like those are probably the two biggest opportunities. Mm. Okay. So, oh, so much to unpack here. So uh, let me talk about data storytelling. So data storytelling, mm. uh, sometimes people refer to data storytelling as that uh, methodology or process of uh, like pointing at data sets and telling a story about it to drive to a specific conclusion. Now, mm-hmm. We like to think about storytelling in a little bit more holistic way to, to, to use that word holistic because, I mean, your storytelling is always embedded in a certain context. So we're talking about human beings. And in that sense, it's always there's always a relationship present. You are always presenting a story from a certain position. So uh, this ties into uh, those things that you mentioned about getting to the next level in the business. So can mm-hmm. we just unpack this a little bit? What, what do you mean by when you want to get to the next level from the basic comprehension of data, what does it mean, do you uh, you think, for a business to be data-driven? It's actually an interesting question that I like to ask sometimes because there are, there are it's not like there's an answer out there that's officially determined uh, what data-drivenness actually, actually means. So uh, what, what do you think? What is your take on this? Yeah, absolutely. I actually I have a prepared answer here because I actually did talk about this about a year ago. <laughs> um, so I think uh, to me, like there's a lot of businesses that I think think they're data driven, and uh, the way they think that is because they look at data when they're making decisions. Um, it's actually like a little bit more nuanced because what I found is like there's some places that uh, think they're data driven, and the way they kind of behave in a, in what they perceive to be a data driven way is they like make a decision and then they kind of like look at the data afterwards to confirm that decision which is like the worst possible thing you can do like that's not that's that's even worse like you should just not even look at the data you should just say hey i believe in this decision let's just do it um there's some places that i think actually like are a little bit better and this is where i'd say like 80% of companies probably are and that they uh, look at data and they use that data as kind of like an input into decision-making where it's like, hey, we want to change the way our, web- our website looks. Um, let's run a test to see whether blue or red is better. Run a test, blue is better. Cool, let's go with blue. Like that's actually like a pretty good place to be in. Uh, 80% is probably an overestimate. I'd say like a good amount of companies do this. Um, I think, uh, I don't know, like Instacart does this often. Um, I would say like it's, it's, a, it's a good place to be in. Um, I would say what really means to be data-driven, and I saw this, I think, a little bit more at Facebook, and Facebook maybe even like was too data-driven in this regard, where you actually like, use the data to figure out what the next thing is to do, rather than saying, we should do this thing, let's look at the data to figure out what the product is. So it's more like um, kind of what I mentioned before, where we're like looking at experiment results, and we're like, hey, in a lot of these experiments, when we like cut them by younger people, they're having less of an effect. So like as a result, we should build like young people-specific strategies. And so that is kind of like you're looking at the data and like you're forming your strategy off the data versus like forming a strategy and just kind of like looking at um, data to figure out what the right things to do. I think both are good. Um, I actually think it's like pretty hard to get your data and your the data literacy of the folks um, who are running the company to a point where you can like actually use the data to inform the strategy. But I think if the more you lean in that direction, I'm a little biased because it's my job, but the more you lean in that direction, I think the, the better your strategies wind up being. Hmm. So going from basic comprehension of data to that state where you said roughly 80% of the companies might be, uh, when they reflect and uh, kind of incorporate data into everyday decision-making mm-hmm. all the way to the more advanced stage of the predictive slash prescriptive analytical applications. Exactly. So so where do you see the key bottlenecks here? So so what do you think that if you, if you imagine a data leader, senior executive whose job is to drive that data-drivenness in the company? 
um, what do you think are the key challenges are? And what do you think are those areas where you guys have the, the, the hardest time of actually making progress? Yeah, there's, I'd say there's three bottlenecks. Um, one is the, and this is one of them like struggling with a little bit today is like the availability of data. Um, and so like just having, I think one thing I took for granted a little bit at Facebook and Google is they have like amazing teams of data engineers who build these, you know, elaborate pipelines and tables that kind of provide data scientists with, with all of the raw tool, like tools and materials they need to actually do these types of insights. Um, at smaller companies, I think, I think a lot of companies don't even know what data engineers are. And so they like hire data scientists and they hope that they can like do their best, but you really need people whose job it is to actually like put a lot of this data in order and make it easily usable. Um, so that's probably like the, the main bottleneck, but for companies who have gotten over that bottleneck, that, that one's like a little bit more easily solved. You can just throw money at the problem, hire a lot of data engineers and they'll do that for you. Um, the, the other bottlenecks are a little harder to solve. So I think one, and they're, they're kind of linked together a little bit. Um, I think one is like ex executive buy-in. So I think you need people who like someone who's in some senior leadership position who kind of buys into the fact that you want data to solve problems. And that like, if you have feelings and those feelings aren't reflected in what the numbers actually show, then like maybe those feelings weren't the right feelings. And like very often in my career, like Facebook, uh, Instacart as well, I've seen places where like, you know, VPs of products are like, hey, this is the direction. I feel really strongly about this. Like I've looked at these, these pieces of evidence, here's where we should go. And some like super junior data scientist comes to them like, hey, actually I ran an experiment, turns out you're wrong. And the really good ones will go like, huh, I was not expecting that. Okay, let's go a different direction. Um, and you don't see that very often, especially not in like older school industries. So I say that's like one bottleneck. Um, but in, you know, in a lot of these companies like Facebook, Google, Instacart, et cetera, like a lot of the execs actually are very data savvy. So the main bottleneck I've seen in these industries is actually the data leaders themselves and the data scientists themselves. Um, it's very, I don't say it's easy because it's still hard because it's a hard job, but it's like easy to kind of just like do things where if like, you know, especially a very uh, strongly minded product manager is like, Hey, like, here's an idea I have. And, you know, they're often like very charismatic and they kind of get everyone behind them. Like, here's my idea. Let's do it. The data science is like, yeah, I'll run the experiment. The experiment sort of says the thing you were saying, like, let's do it. It's going to be great. Um, but I think the thing you really need to do is um, kind of almost like work with the product team, but also be like your own independent person and be like, actually, here's what I think we should do. Or like, I have this completely different thing and we should figure out how to prioritize between, between the two of them. Um, I think it's really easy to kind of um, fall behind like a, like a leader, like a product manager, like an engineering manager, and kind of just like get swept up in their wake and do that thing. And often it's not a bad idea. Usually the product is successful and like you're part of the team and it's great. But I feel like the biggest uh, insights I've seen were the ones where actually the data scientists kind of um, like cut, what's the word, like cut through the mold. I don't know if that's an expression, but like mm. with the ones where the data scientists like really were like cross-cutting and were like, hey, I don't think that's the right deal. Let's do this completely different thing. And had to maybe push really hard against the organization, but in the end, like those were the best outcomes. Mm. Now, this is really cool. So we have basically uh, these, uh, so you mentioned the availability of data. This is a problem and you can throw money at it, get more data engineers, cool. So this is less exciting for us to talk about. Now it'd be the executive buy-in. So let's just spend maybe a few, few minutes on this. Um, mm -hmm. What skills and techniques, strategies, methodologies do you think are needed to get executive buy-in? So if let's say a company is not as lucky or advanced where you already have this, but you have the data savvy executives, 
what do you think from your personal experience or maybe your, just your personal take, uh, what do you think should be prioritized in these cases? What skills should be built? Uh, uh, what do you think can be done about getting more executive buy-in? Um, you mean like what skills in the executives themselves? Uh, I would uh, actually be interested in what you think a data leader should Ooh. do in this case. What, what should they bring to the table? Where should they maybe develop a skill? Um, maybe best practice from a certain area? Like any reflection that you have on this would be interesting. Yeah, uh, I'd say maybe the first skill. So I think maybe to answer the other question, like there are certain things I think are, I mean, I don't know if intrinsic is the right word, but like intrinsic in a lot of like, executives who are non-data science that kind of makes them be data savvy leaders. Um, you know, things like humility, things like, you know, desire to like do a lot of research and like read a lot of things. Often product decks are like, I don't want to say they're simple, but it's like, hey, here's a product we should build. Here's a design mock. Um, data engineering decks are like, you know, 30 pages long. Like here's a nuance, there's a nuance, there's a nuance. Um, so it does take a lot of kind of like time and effort to do that type of thing. And so maybe to turn that back to your question, uh, the thing that dailyers I think can do is like when they look for a new job, um, you know, you're doing interviews and often you're going to be doing an interview with like the, you know, your product partner or things like that. Like these are things that you can suss out. Um, the, the interviews go two ways, right? So like they're interviewing for the job, but you should also be interviewing the people you're going to be working with as to like, you know, how they've made daily driven decisions. Uh, a question I always love to ask in interviews is um, tell me about the top uh, data insight that the D DS team has had in the last year, like from the product person. And you can't really like BS your way out of that question because you can't like, you can't say, oh, I love data. Like that's a really easy answer. But like, if you have listened to the team enough to be able to describe in depth, like the top insight, then you probably are actually listening and like, you know, it's probably going to work out. If you can't, then, you know, it's going to be a little rough. Um, but the other things, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like a case by case basis. I would say like, I think you earlier talked about relationship building. I think if you have like a leader on the product or engineering side or an executive who is like open to listening to this stuff, it's about building that relationship and building that trust with them. And sometimes I think data leaders are like, there's often this meme in data science, like you shouldn't be a support function. You should be like, you know, leading things in this way or that way. I think when you like start out in a role, I think it's actually kind of okay to like, in some ways be a support function to develop that trust. Like if the product leader has like a question that they've been like looking for the answer for, for a year, even if you don't think it's a good use of time, just like help them answer the question, like spend two weeks on it, have your team spend a couple of revs on it, get them an answer. Um, and at that point I'd be like, okay, well, you know, for a year I've been asking for this, this person just came in, they got me the answer to this. Uh, you know, maybe it was a stupid question, maybe it wasn't, but then they are like, okay, maybe this person knows what they're doing. And when you come to them later on with like, I think you're wrong, we should do it this way. They'll remember that moment and, you know, it'll kind of be a better relationship. Mm. So you mentioned that uh, there's this meme about okay, RB support function or uh, should we drive change really assertively and come with the most innovative ideas yep. all the time. And it's kind of like the question between the humility and assertiveness, like which one, which, which path. And then uh, it's an interesting conversation because a lot of times the answer lies somewhere in between. In fact, mm -hmm. these things should not be mutually exclusive. One of the other podcast guests, um, also a great uh, a champion of the of the podcast, Pete Williams, who's the director of data and online at Penguin Random House, the publishing house. And he had a great data story that he shared with us about his system of creating this data literate ecosystem. And in that, he had this concept of the data consigliere, which I really liked, you know, from The Godfather, that basically yeah. how you want to position yourself is, yeah, you are the ultimate support function, but with a lot 
of influence, actual influence in the business. So my question to you would be that, what do you think are the qualities of the ideal data transformation leader who can actually implement and drive change? You already mentioned some of those things, but if you needed to list the qualities or maybe the virtues, if we can use that word, which is basically a habit of character, what do you think that the most successful really embody in this area? Yeah, I'll say the the two probably most important characteristics, I think, and you can, this has been a way that's worked for me and that I've seen work for people. Um, you know, it's possible there are other ways that work, but for me, it's actually, uh, I would say flexibility and pragmatism. Um, and again, like I do want to caveat, like I've seen people who are not flexible, not pragmatic and like super principled, and they've actually done very well in their careers and they've influenced leaders. So like, this isn't the only way of, of doing it. Um, but what I've seen, uh, often is that people who like are very inflexible about things or like, I don't think things should be done in this way. Or like, I, you know, I really don't think my team should be working on this. Like, absolutely not. It's just, it creates like this tense, like give and take relationship. Whereas I feel like your relationship with your product partners and your engineering partners should be like, I want to say like a friendship because you're like coworkers, but like, I think it should be like, kind of, it should be a little bit of give and take. And I think a lot of uh, DS leaders in particular, I found have difficulty with, with the give because they feel like every time they're giving, they're kind of going more towards that dark place of being a support function. Um, but as you mentioned, like it is a little bit of both. Like I think all functions are support functions in some way and leading functions in some other ways. Um, and what I found is that if you really actually, I've, I found that most people like, like to talk about leading, um, but like actually when they're given the chance to do it, they don't like always take advantage of it. And I found the opposite that like, if you actually want to lead something, like everyone will get out of your way and be happy that you do it, unless you're like leading something that's like a terrible idea. Um, like generally, like a, I found that people like often really are happy when people like go lead things. And I've done that through my career and I've like been surprised by how receptive people are to it. So I would say like, you should like be a member, like, you know, be a member of the team, be a member of the family, like do the support stuff you need to do. Um, and then kind of uh, take advantage of those leadership opportunities as they come up and don't be afraid to step up into that role because I think you'll be surprised with how well people will receive it. Um, that's well said, well said. So we talked about the that uh, uh, tension between assertiveness and humility and really being the support function or you really like assume that position of purveyor of truth and then drive change. Uh, now, from your uh, perspective and also from your from your experience, driving that change, how important were soft skills, actual communication, building relationships, uh, building trust, and also the idea of storytelling and persuasion and influence? How important do you think those things are when it comes to uh, successful data leadership today? Uh, yeah, a little bit of a leading question because I think you know what the answer <laughs> is, but ex yeah, extremely important. Um, I would say, except in rare cases, much more important than technical skills. Uh, I feel like for, for technical skills, there's like a baseline that I think everyone should have. Like you shouldn't deliver wrong insights. You should know like the basics. Like if someone's like, hey, you know, is there a correlation between these two things? Or can you help me set up this experiment? Like you should know how to do that stuff. Um, but I think it's like very rare that deeper technical skills are better use of your time than getting to like a good level on soft skills. Uh, so yeah, communication, uh, you know, cross, uh, cross-functional partner management, all of those things. The thing that, uh, I guess I'll use this time to talk about a thing that probably people don't talk about as often, which, um, is what at Facebook, I think we, we called having a nose for impact, which is, um, you know, trying to not just like having good relationships, but also like having the wherewithal to understand which projects uh, are the best places to use your time. 
Um, and this becomes especially important as your manager, because then your opinion of these things then trickles down to your team. And if you have your team working on the wrong projects, then you're going to be in a really bad spot. Um, so this one's like pretty tough to develop. And I would say like, I don't think I've actually developed it quite yet at Instacart. I've you know only been here five months. Um, but I think uh, it's kind of about like looking at what has been successful across the org, um, reading a lot of like memos written by leaders, like watching the all hands and kind of, I think a lot of people like read these things and think about these things and they just look at the results. They're like, oh, the CEO said this. Okay, cool. But often what I like to do and what I encourage people to do is actually like look one level deeper of like, okay, why is the CEO spending her 30 minutes talking about this specific thing? Like, why not any of these other things? Why is this thing so important? And uh, I think every, I'd say there's probably like a 10, 20% hit rate, but every once in a while you can kind of like get that insight of something that is actually happening that is not obvious and spend some time working on that. And you can like get ahead of a trend. Um, I feel like that's like a really understated skill to have. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in this sense, so how much of that uh, preparation and identification of these key projects are more passive when you do research on your own, maybe, you know, find certain documents and how much of it is actually sitting down with people and building that interpersonal connection and relationship? Um, you can, you can do, but I think you have to actually do both. Uh, I think, yeah, if you said like just reading documents in an empty room, like you're going to maybe learn some things, but then... Like at the end of the day, like the, it's again, very rare that like you deliver an analysis that's so compelling that you can just blast it out into the ether and like take a vacation. And then like the company starts moving and grinding its gears because of your amazing insight. Uh, often it's like a, it's, it's often kind of like a, you have to follow through. It's like a stakeholder management type of thing. So you have to deliver the insight. You have to convince people that you're right. You have to kind of like work with them to figure out what to do. You have to follow up with them. It's things like that. So I, I do, I have seen a lot of times where people like have a great insight. They've done all this like self passive pre-work then they like throw it over the wall and they expect that everyone will, will jump and you no, know, and it kind of just like lands in the, the grass and no one really cares. Um, so you do have to kind of like follow it over the wall and, you know, follow through on, on the whole thing. And that's mm -hmm. where the stake, the, the meetings come in. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So that's on the leadership level. So we're talking about the data leaders, the directors. Even even if you even if you're an IC, like if you have uh like some sort of analysis and you present it to like, I mean, yeah, like maybe you're not gonna spend a lot of time talking to like a director of product. Um, I mean, maybe it will it depends on the company. But like if you're working with a PM and you're like, hey, I think here's an amazing insight, and the PM's like, okay, cool, let's move on. Like that's not gonna land you any impact. Like you need to actually like be like, okay, what can we do about it? Like who can I work with to launch a project? What experiments can we run? So you do need to kind of like have that follow through. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about your your team, so we're talking about we talk about data leaders who are identifying the projects, who are communicating with, with the business maybe on a higher level. But we keep hearing this that even the level of data scientists and data analysts who people want to train to business analysts as well, that the soft skills are are lacking. That it's 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 the one thing that really keeps these organizations and data functions from fulfilling their potential because they have amazingly mm -hmm. intelligent people with PhDs, the amazing skill set in handling technology and platforms that are building the most fascinating products and services and platforms. But at the yep. same time, their uh, lack of savvy in in business and interpersonal communication sometimes it stands in the way of of, of them extracting that value from from analytics so in your experience uh is this an issue and if so uh, what do you think are the ways to address this uh, currently through training uh, through maybe just exposing them to certain situations what is your take on this Ooh, um, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely an issue. Um, I think, uh, there's like many soft skills that are important and like, it's, you know, every once in a while you 
meet someone who's like really good at all of them. Um, and sometimes there's like, I'd say there's different ones. Like one is like communicating directly with your stakeholders. One is why I mentioned like figuring out the right places to spend your time. And each like failure at each one of these like leads to a different like non-ideal relationship. Like you could have a relationship where you're actually like an excellent communicator. And like every time your product partner is like, hey, we should do this thing. You're like, yes, amazing. Let's do it. And then you do it and the experiment shows some result. And you're like, this is such a great launch. And you launch it. And it turns out like actually like you really should have told them that it was a bad idea. Um, or you should spend your time somewhere else. So you can be a great communicator and still have like a, it can one be a bad relationship because you both like each other, but like it's bad for the business. Um, the How to actually train people is I would, I would say much harder. Um, I would say like the, <clears throat> this is going to be like maybe like a hack, but like the hack is just to hire people who are good at these types of things um, and really interview for this and like really test for this in, in the interview loops. Um, and I don't mean like ICs, like I think it's fine for like junior or even senior ICs to see this as a growing opportunity. Um, but when you're hiring managers for your team and when you're hiring directors, like you need like this needs to be a skill set they have like especially if your team is weak in this like their skill set needs to complement that um and what the biggest failure mode here i've seen is when the team is not great at like communication and stakeholder management and things like that and then you bring in a director who's also not good at that thing and maybe that director is like a technical wizard um it's going to be really bad because the team is going to double down on like focusing on like analytical work and not really focusing on the soft skills and so yeah, I, I, there might be better ways, but like the the quickest hack I've seen is hiring a leader with complementary skill sets mm -hmm, and kind of mm -hmm. train the team. Absolutely. Actually, this really makes me think about uh, my experience in consulting for small AI and data analytics companies, small startups with people probably IQ around like 160. They had like very in-depth technical knowledge. They built amazing things and still they couldn't really... Uh, put it to market. They couldn't really engage customers uh, with it. So I like to think about some of these data functions in a similar way that you are ultimately entrepreneurs. It's a business within a business and your client is the business who's paying the bills. And then if you start to be kind of self-serving in that sense of not really connecting to the real needs and desires of your target audience, well, that you, that, that will bite you back in the uh, in the long run. Or even yeah, that's short, right? that's exactly the right way to think about. It. I actually, um, honestly, like that one of the reasons I took this particular role um, was I actually thought about the reverse way, where I feel like over the years I've like learned how to kind of like develop those soft skills and work with cross-functional partners really well. And this role actually partners with external clients and businesses. So I'm like, okay, well, I figure out this thing, like maybe it'll translate to this other thing. So almost like the reverse of what you said. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then this kind of ties into my next question, um, because a lot of our members would like to really focus on developing those soft skills because they want to take advantage of all these new opportunities that are being enabled now by technology, because it's been accelerating in the 90s for data transformation leader. The challenges were different than today. And mm -hmm. what do you see as the greatest opportunities right now? What makes you excited about some of the up and coming trends, uh, new technologies, uh, what will be enabled from your perspective in the next couple of years, because everyone's uh, everyone's talking about how the 2020s will be the decade of data, but we know that with these trends, as it usually goes, there will be a lot of winners, but also uh, an equal, maybe even a higher amount of losers, unfortunately, as it as, as it usually the case. So, so what are you most excited about, and what do you identify as the as the key trends to really pay attention to? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'll I'll maybe give a slightly answer, maybe a slightly different question. Um, so like. I think you mentioned the proliferation of data. Mm -hmm. I think what that means is that there's just a lot of different industries and opportunities for people. And I think 
I would say like 10 years ago, data science wasn't as much of a thing, but now there's like a bunch of people like directors, VPs, like a lot of leaders in, in that area. And I think the the perk here is actually that you will get to like work with, interact with these leaders. And like for me, uh, I'm not really good like learning from like a textbook or a class or anything like that. The way I learn is by pattern matching. And so like most of the things I've learned have actually been from the leaders that I've, that I've worked with. Uh, like maybe as an example, maybe this answers like an earlier question, like what you can do to develop these skills. Um, there's a point early in my career at Google where I was really bad sending emails. Um, it sounds like silly because like it's so easy to send emails, but like I was, my emails, they were like unclear or they were like too curt or whatever. And there was a point which my, uh, my manager who was um, like the director of the area and this guy, he was, I think he wasn't even like a, I can think even like. I don't even know if English was his first language. He wasn't like an amazing, like you would not think he's an amazing communicator, but he somehow actually had a lot of influence with his partners and things like that. So he's like, okay, I want you to sit behind me for the next two hours and you're going to watch every email I send and every text I send. And I just sat behind him at his desk in his office and I watched him send these emails. And I learned so much from that one or two hours. I'm like that it really actually just set the stage for like the rest of my career. Um, I, like if I didn't have those two hours, I actually don't know if I would have even like developed those soft skills. So then, yeah, my advice from that is like, find people, it can be your manager, it can be someone else in, in the org and just like meet with them and like ask them to give you advice or maybe like even ask for like a, you know, you have pair coding sessions, like why not pair communication sessions? Like ask them for help, um, ask them for feedback on your emails. Um, it's hard to get that. Cause like only often the people who see your emails are like you and another person. Um, or if you're in meetings together, ask them for feedback on your communication style. Uh, if you find someone who's like generous enough to actually give you real feedback rather than like, oh yeah, you're doing well. Um, that's like something that you should really treasure. That's such a cool insight because uh, I found the same over my career. I, I always say that I think email is the most dangerous and risky tool that has been developed in the past 60 years. And uh, it's really, really easy to use it the wrong way. And it, uh, we won't have time to really dive into all the aspects of communication because it's it's mostly emotional. So communication is a really emotional platform. And then uh, people are the least charitable when they read your emails. So it, it always yeah. you have to imagine that my email will be read in the worst possible light imaginable. That's and, a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So no, that's really cool. Maybe we can talk about it uh, some other time, but Gene, this was a really cool interview. I want to be respectful of your time as well. I know you have a, a hard stuff coming up as a final insight to our audience. What would be your, your personal recommendations for aspiring data leaders who want to be really successful in the next couple of years? Ooh, uh, yeah, no, no pressure with these big questions. Um, yeah, my, I guess my final recommendation is, it's going to sound really cliche, but a lot of people say, you know, find something you're passionate about. I, that's probably my advice is to find something you're passionate about and do that thing. And it doesn't have to be a product. It doesn't have to be like a particular tool or analysis. It's just like being in a role where every day you're kind of like, Hey, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to tackle the problems that we're tackling. And I think being in that type of environment will actually like cultivate your desire to learn more, your desire to emulate people. Um, so I would say like, if you don't like your job, especially if you work in data science or engineering, there is so many opportunities out there. Like you should, you owe it to yourself to find something you love. It can be within the same team. It can be within the same company, maybe outside the company. Uh, so keep, keep trying. Um, I think until like I got to Facebook, I, I, I mentioned like having those small tweaks. So like constantly evaluate things in your career, um, like make small tweaks and they're like, hey, I really like this part of the job. I don't like this part. Like find something that makes you like that part. And then you will find some like the next week you want to make. So that is my advice. Don't like stay in one place and kind of suck it up. Find something that really speaks to you.
Mm, that's a great guiding light and a north star. So thank you so much for insights, Gene. This was a really cool conversation, and we yeah, thanks hope, for chatting. Yeah, absolutely, and and we hope to uh, have you just sharing your insights uh, with our community uh, in some other way, maybe moving forward. So thank you so much. Yeah, for sure, we'd love that. Take care. See you later. Bye bye. 